Hey, all my IFG friends, this is Steve. I want to say, you know, if you like movies like I do, we've started a new podcast called Happy Hour Flicks. Uh, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. It's all about nostalgic movies that we love, and we bring on special guests each episode, and we also have specialty cocktails made for each one, too. So it really is an hour of a good time talking about movies that we love, like Gremlins, uh, Seven, uh, Free Willy. Uh, we talk about The Last Starfighter also. So, I mean, we kind of run the gamut across all the decades and really have a great time. So I wanted to invite you to come over and join us at Happy Hour Flicks, anywhere podcasts are found. Something about this documentary is it just would suck you in so hard. And Nelson and I were so deep. Like, Shauna came, and it was like, we were at the bottom of this deep, deep, deep hole. There was, like, maybe one ray of sunshine at the edge of it, and then, like, it was covered by Shauna looking down inside the mine, and we're like, hell. This is the, the independent, independent, independent filmmaker's guide from Framework Productions. Framework. Framework Productions. Welcome back to the Independent Filmmaker's Guide. I'm James Allardyce. And I'm Stephen Pierce. Great to see you again, James. And we had the pleasure to watch this week a documentary independent film called A La Calle. The soundtrack for the film is available on Spotify as well. So if you're listening to this podcast on Spotify or uh, if you just want to hop over to Spotify, check out the soundtrack by composer Ilik Alvarez, A La Calle. Something I was, I, I've seen headlines about this right exactly. but i was not this is the most cohesive version of this i've seen and getting to speak with max nelson and shauna about their experience making it i mean for instance the filmmakers couldn't even they never even stepped foot inside venezuela during the production of this it was too too risky too dangerous they'd be caught right they'd be part, right. going back and forth you know, they enlisted a uh, kind of a small army of uh, of filmmakers in the country who were out in the streets um, and then, you know, coordinated uh, with them to obtain all the footage and, and tell the story. So we spoke with them about how they coordinated that and about how they chose their subject matter um, and about a lot of other things that are, are, are super interesting, especially if you're thinking about or interested in um, the documentary world. So uh uh, let's jump into it, man. Uh, Shauna, can you like what is what is Alakaye about? Like, in, in just like kind of the couple of sentences for somebody that doesn't know anything about the project. I think all three of us probably would would answer that slightly differently. But I mean, for, I came on much later in the process. The guys were already had most of the film had been shot already. There was just a few pickups still when I came on. Um, and when I got introduced to the project and saw mostly raw footage, to me, it was a love letter to Venezuela um, because it was basically giving a voice to the people of Venezuela that I had never, I, I knew nothing about the crisis there when I um, uh, like just came on the project. It was literally like the film, the footage taught me everything I needed to know. Um, but, uh, I mean, really I, you know, the film is about, you know, I think, you know, a warning signal red flag for all democratic nations. Um, this is just one awesome, you know, unfortunately awesome example of what happens when dictator gets to control of a country and how hard it is to undo that. Yeah. My background as a, you know, Venezuelan immigrant, I think I was always 
uh, attracted to like um like the idea of you know as a filmmaker telling the story of my country you know i think that was always in the back of my head um it only manifested when me max and marcus were working together we had a production company and um max got approached by uh, greg and who had basically access to the story of Leopoldo lopez and then you know, we started in conversations and then Greg was like, I, I would love to make this story, but nobody really wants to go to Venezuela. You know, like it's too crazy out there. And then Max was like, well, you know, we would love to do it. We have, a, you know, our team, a director from Venezuela. And, you know, as soon as we talked, we, we just hit the ground running, you know. And then, and then shortly we realized that it was bigger than Leopoldo. This is like, this, this was like a universal story that we were trying to tell you know about like democracy and the fight for freedom and you know a whole country you know and and we didn't know it was such a big story until we, we kind of just started making it so so going that's on, kind of from my side yeah going on, on that theme um at what point you know did you start filming and when did you decide you know what the beginning middle and end of this documentary was going to be because obviously the situation continues to develop um you know until this day so how did you decide and when did you decide uh where this kind of starts and where this ends did you have a premise going in where you wanted to see this film go or um or did it develop along the way and and did that carry on into the edit process uh, it, I, th I think the, well, we, we had an idea when we started, but that process kind of like the situation was pretty, had to be fluid and flexible. Um, you know, I think one of the things that was most challenging in addition to the security issues and all those sort of logistical issues of filming in Venezuela was trying to create a story that felt complete on a situation that was unfolding that had no clear end in sight or clear structure that was being built within it. You know, sometimes when the story's over, it's a lot easier to kind of go in and pick what the arcs and where the emphasis needs to be, but it's a lot harder to do that when your story's unfolding and there's no way to know what's coming next. And so I think that that was a big challenge that we faced right from the outset. In addition to the fact that Leopoldo Lopez, who was one of the first stories we had access to was in prison at the time. So it's a little difficult when, you know, at the outset, your main subject is already in jail uh, and no one can see him. So it was kind of like, okay, how do we navigate that? And I think for us, the what we decided to do is say, okay, kind of resisting some more of the like artistic uh, inclinations, sort of more like informational, like, okay, looking at Venezuela, what are sort of the pillars of the crisis that we're looking at? and and how can we demonstrate or how can we show those in the most intimate way possible, right? Because people, individual stories are the things that people are going to relate to the most. And so that's where we got the idea of saying, okay, it's the day to day, right? Randall, it's the medical crisis, Federica, it's the economic crisis, which kind of we had to use Randall, a little bit of expert interviews but also, and then it's the political, which is kind of where Nixon and Leopoldo came in. Um, and so we set out with that at the, at the outset, let's find people that represent these pillars as best as possible. And then the search just began. And I think most documentary filmmakers will probably tell you that the most important part of making a documentary is choosing your subjects. And that was probably the thing that took us the longest amount of time 
to do to finally settle on them. Actually, we found a couple in very quickly, but it wasn't for a little while that we were like, okay, we're going the long haul with these guys. You know, one of the things that stood out to me and, you know, I want to get into logistics and how you guys did this, but stood out to me right away was how this power kind of transferred was immediately how the Supreme Court was just basically overrun and taken over by uh, the current leader of, you know, Venezuela's Maduro that I'm saying it correct, right? Maduro. Yeah. Um, and that really rung true to me because it felt like, well, that's there's a systematic way that we've seen in other democracies, not unlike kind of what's ha- what happened, you know, here. Um, where there's just all of a sudden an influx of, you know, putting a, a you know a judicial branch in charge of, of of things, and that's kind of the beginning of kind of the end of checks and balances in many ways. So, I mean, back to what you were saying a second ago, Max, like choosing the subjects. So you guys started with um, the, the with one storyline, and I oh, it's a really fascinating. You have footage of him inside the prison cell. So how did that come about? What what where did that come from? So that so he had been recording a lot of that footage um, on his own or with the help of people around him. Um, can't really go into too much detail as to like who was recording what for obvious yeah, of course, safety yet, reasons, of course. security reasons. But uh, he was kind of documenting that process on his own. Um, and for various reasons, you know, sometimes he would sneak messages to the public that would be put through his political party's channels, sometimes for himself, for his family, for posterity. Um, I think one thing when you start to get to know Leopoldo is he's very self-aware. Um, you know, he realizes that he, he, the whole point of what he did was to be a, was to achieve a symbolic act. And I think he has was trying to work toward ma- uh, keeping the relevance of that act um, over time. And so he understood the importance of documenting what he was going through as much as possible so that when he ever got out or during the process, he could share that story with the world because, you know, his whole idea was like, you know, I am the case in point political dissidents or people who do not agree with the government are silenced in the most violent way. Look at my example. Right. And so I think he was very aware of, you know, that was his whole mission. Um, But yeah, so he ended up giving all that to us like after the fact, you know what I mean? It's kind of funny. I was like, all right, you know, Leopoldo, like, I don't know what you were up to in prison necessarily, but did you maybe get a chance to take a picture, record a video or something? And then I got like the biggest set of WhatsApp text messages with videos and pictures. And I was like, oh, got it <laughs> and we're gonna have to figure out a better way to transfer all this because i can't go through 150 whatsapp messages but you know i realized that he had been doing this uh most of the time on his own yeah so this is kind of a, a i mean literal guerrilla filmmaking process uh i mean t- tell me a little bit about how how that worked to, I know logistically there are details you probably can't get into, but over this kind of top down, this is not a conventional film production in any way, shape or form for capturing. I think I have some, some cool stories. I think, um, first of all, we we had a lot of luck with our producer. Shout out to Greg. He, uh, he trusted us a lot on the process because we came from, um, like short form and, even though we had the skills, we never taken, we haven't taken on something this big before. So I guess, how do we put this into the most logical sense? Basically, I had a, I had a, a lot of trusted 
colleagues in Venezuela, you know, people who have shot, I don't know, music videos in the worst areas. You know, I usually try to get into the most trouble to get the best footage. So I don't know, people knew I was serious, you know, and then um, when I gather a group of people, I actually like try to pitch it in a way that was not so scary, you know, because in Venezuela, you can't really speak against the government. So I cre I created kind of like a network where we had like a like tiers, you know, it's like the filmmakers and the journalists, and then just the just like the street creative, you know. And then in the street creators, we had like graffiti artists, like I don't know, music video directors, like even just even just I had a I had a friend who just got on the you can't really film in, in the subway. But I was like, here, I'm going to send you a GoPro. I'm going to pay your day rate and just do all those videos that you upload on Instagram. I need all those, but on GoPro. So, you know, we did a lot of that. So I, I, I like scouted and created like a really solid team. And then we would send them directions and then we'll get footage. And then maybe 20% of what we got was good. That's what we needed. But we would get it like three months after we send the signal. So, and then every time that we got a foot, uh, footage back, the internet in Venezuela is like probably the worst in the world. So we had to send hard drives. Then I had to find somebody through like social media or something who knew somebody who was traveling to the U.S. and just be like, hey, I'm going to send you an uh, encrypted hard drive. <laughs> you know, and it was just like a lot of magic. And it worked. And it worked because that's how things work in Latin America, you know. People here survive with nothing. So they just make magic, magic, and and the crew knew that that's what we needed to do. Fortunately, nothing happened to our crew. Serious, you know, to like one person got in trouble, but nothing happened to them. Um, but everybody involved who decided to put their name on the film knows that there's a risk of going back. So they assumed it, you know, like I assumed it. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, there's got to be, but that's what's most amazing about documentary filmmaking, right? Is that there is an aspect of journalism, especially in the subject matter like this. I mean, you're filming people that are like men in a river, like not even a river, in a drainage ditch, like digging through the bottom, trying to find, you know, things they can sell or use, you know, to, to I mean, and then you you have, I mean, the cold open of the damn film is, is a street interview that gets interrupted by gunfire and then they're running away. I mean, this it's no joke. You know what I mean? This is not even like, yeah, this is a rough neighborhood. It is. Uh, I think that that's also what's admirable about all these people that are working with you in this is that it is trying to actively affect change and say something with what you're doing. And that's why we're all here in the first place. And there's, there's something that there's a level of complexity just being in Venezuela, you know, just, just going from point A to point B, you could get kidnapped, you could get robbed, you could get I don't know, stopped by police and the search. Imagine like all the stuff, you know, all the all the complexity of being a filmmaker in a war zone. And then you add all that layer. It was it was almost like impossible task. You know, that's why probably nobody wanted to go. <laughs> <laughs> Nelson, you're you're from Venezuela, correct? You said? Yeah. Yeah. I was born in Caracas and I moved to the Bay Area when I was 15. So do you, I mean, were you guys ever on the ground for this production at all? Or was it all just remote crews that you were kind of coordinating and trying to direct from afar? Well, we decided early on, like I knew the risk of filming in Venezuela because I, I did film a lot. And I knew that if we were in and out of the country, we were going to get caught. 
And I decided to like use my team, you know, because I had trusted people and they just, they were giving us good material. So it was, we, we directed it from far, but it was like a risk situation assessment, you know. I, I didn't want to put my team in, in, you know, in trouble. And just the fact, just getting into the country with cameras is already a red flag. So, you know, if we went in, we would have to stay years, you know. And I did not want to put everybody in risk. So, so much of this, uh, the making of this from your end was coordination. Is that right? Coordinating uh, with, with all this. So how did going in and coordinating with all this, um, how did you get set up? So you, I take it you decided that you were going to make a feature length documentary, right? That's something that you set, you set out from the get go and not something that developed along the way. Is that correct? Um, maybe I could let Max answer. Yeah. I mean, the, that was the goal. Greg, our the executive producer kind of was at first was just kind of like, can you actually get me stuff out of Venezuela? Because he had approached many filmmakers who had operated in uh, difficult environments and all of them were like, no, I'm not even going to try. Like, I'm not even, that's crazy. I'm done. I'm good. So when he met, when I was introduced to him and I spoke to him about when, you know, Nelson as a doc, as a have being from Venezuela and having that network, he was, uh, hopeful but also like probably had that healthy sense of caution and skepticism so the first kind of initial pass or, or milestone was saying okay we can actually get a team out there collect footage and get it back to america that was like the first test and um without nelson you know nelson kind of without nelson his having been there having had that community and having had the sort of like trust of that community there's absolutely no way anyone could have probably done this um at especially at that time it was a very very tense time to be out on the street filming um but that was the initial phase and then once we kind of got past the okay we can do this even though it's kind of a weird way of doing it seeing film months in advance after you've kind of given the direction and then like hoping it kind of was what you were going for because a lot of time a lot you know i'm sure everyone knows as you know there's a creative language you have to create with your team and especially when you're doing it from far that can take a long time and so that was something that nelson had to work really hard and his daily calls was like creating the same creative language that they knew what we wanted to get but anyway once we said yeah we can do this at least on the very minimum level of like footage can be captured and brought out of venezuela we're like, all right, well, let's try to get this longer thing and try to see what that looks like. And, and then, I, no, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Steve. No, I was just going to say, and I mean, uh, but also I'm guessing you had a pile of footage at the end. I mean, you said Nelson, which it feels about right. You about 20% of what you got was usable. Maybe, I don't know. I just kind of threw a number. But yeah, I mean, that 30%. feels consistent with the documentaries I've done. Yeah. You just, you're like, what is that? Film it. Well, there's, I was thinking about it. There's, there's so many stories in our hard drives of you know that are worth we could make another documentary if you want yeah, yeah that's um, so how how when you got to the editing process you guys seemed like you there had you had like a separate editor working on this as well right so you really had to are you guys alone yeah yeah we honestly this this was like uh this we me max marcus and you know our core team before shauna came in like we had we went through we did it like a master's in filmmaking you know 
have to put the producer hat and da, 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 da. we switch every hat. Me and Max mostly worked on the structure and the and the language that we wanted to the story we wanted to tell and it was it was pretty rough. But we, we knew what we wanted, you know, it's like we want to tell the character story and we want to tell the bigger story. Like how do we interweave those things? Of course we're not editors, you know, but the main structure was created by us. And then Michael, I can't remember his last name. We, we actually went through several editors, if, I, if you don't mind me jumping in. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. So, yeah, I think our producing partner, Marcus, Cheek, and Nelson were really like, well, actually all three of you guys were chipping away editorially at the, it, it was an absolute beast of, like, like you say, mountains of footage that, you know, they had just started, they started with the biggest problem to solve, which was what even selects to start boiling down. And then we had another editor come on that wasn't, you know, got it to a certain point, but wasn't totally the right fit to see it to the next step. And then Yesenia came on, who was great. She sort of like was very, very character focused and then, um, uh, and laid that down. And then, uh, and then Michael Gleaton came in at the end to work with the filmmakers on kind of this real finished, like, took Yesenia's character building. So it, I feel like it was almost like this baton got passed on and then each editing editor like contributed their next, you know, kind of the added their layer of talent to it and their, their magic or secret sauce. And that just, that's what we ended up with. Like, uh, but everyone had their own important role in it. That makes okay, sense. so yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And like going on that idea with the baton getting passed, you know, obviously yeah, that's that's a, a really good analogy, I think, because you have the filmmakers in the country acquiring the footage, you know, taking the risk, getting the footage out to Nelson and Max. And then how did you get involved, Shauna? And where was the project when when you first saw it? And then what was your goal to move it forward and propel it? So I made Momentum Generation with, I worked on Moment, uh, with Priority Pictures made a film uh, called Momentum Generation. And so Greg Little and I, their exec producer, um, uh, knew each other from another movie. And, um, you know, the guys had been running a marathon for like three years, right? You guys, like it was, you guys were so deep yeah, and, almost exa yeah. and honestly exhausted, if I could say that. <laughs> I think. Um, and I just really came in. I'm like the mother hen organizer. Okay. Let's, let's make this a distributor, you know, distributor friendly product now. And let's like, kind of like um, get a, a post-production schedule um, in place. And look, it's interesting. I, I was like, as they were describing like the filming part, I like, I was thinking like the edit, phase was almost like its own war zone because there was so much footage and so much of it was actually really good. It was so hard. I watched them, everyone struggle, like all of us struggled, but I mean, the filmmakers ultimately had like, it was their vision, but like, they just had so much to pull from. Um, but uh, yeah, so anyway, I sort of came in uh, to help with that, that last push for the last, I can't believe it's been two and a half years. I think I've been on this. 
um, already, but um, yeah, and just sort of helping, like kind of getting all the pieces in place, both, you know, legally, tech, you know, everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure this is a legal kind of monstrosity because you have know, all the footage coming from different places and you have a lot of like newsreel footage, a lot of found footage. How did you find that stuff, first of all? And second of all, how did you acquire the rights to get to use it? Well, um, I mean, the guys can jump in too because there's footage came from a lot of places. I mean, I have an archival production background. So um, we had a really good researchers come on and help us with like the new stuff and the low hanging fruit, you know, just the soundbite stuff we needed um, to fill in holes. But um, what's what's kind of not obvious, I think, when you watch the movie is that um, the guys would like, I again, you guys jump in if I'm getting this wrong, but they would like go down a storyline and there might be just like a slight gap where we just needed some more footage to like make that full arc and the story happen. And so Nelson would go back to the street, so to speak, and call in favors of shooters that weren't hired by production, for example. And and through his network, he would just start like that WhatsApp was like the magic bullet. And he would find like, oh, this guy was down there shooting that day and da, 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 and this guy has some footage. And like all of a sudden, like footage would appear magically that looked like production footage. <laughs> but it it was we actually licensed it from, you know, talented filmmakers who happened to be just down there shooting on their own. Um, so there was it was a really cool um, mix of archival, you know, standard library stuff that we needed, like the Chavez stuff, you know, historical news, news bites. We, you know, tra did traditional licensing or fair use. We had a lot of fair use material. Um, but, but yeah, that it was, it was a, a, a wide range of eclectic. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it was, and to show it was interesting because we, we, when we first put this story together, because we were the first editors, I think we had, um, we saw those gaps, you know, and we're like, it's impossible to fill this gap. And I think um, we would just download a YouTube video, just boom, throw it in an editing sequence. And then, and then Shauna came in and she's like, what is this mess? You know, like, we, we can't use this thing, you know? And I'm like, but Shauna, we need to use it. So I don't know. She, she kind of, she actually learned a lot on how to license footage. I had no idea like, what was why I had to find it. But I think with her guidance, we were able to, um, to distinguish what we needed, you know? And if it wasn't available, or sometimes we'll find it on YouTube and then like she said, find the actual shooter. And then, but but like the majority of the structure is ours, you know, like we created it from the ground, but some things are impossible to make. I think, I think going back to the, the question about where Sha where we were at when Shauna came and the, the passing of the baton, like I think something about this documentary and I'm sure most, uh, many documentaries are like this, but this is my experience, so I can only speak on it, is it just would suck you in so hard. And Nelson and I were so deep. Like, mm -hmm. Shauna came, and it was like, we were at the bottom of this deep, deep, deep hole. There was, like, maybe one ray of sunshine at the edge of it. And then, like, it was covered by Shauna looking down inside the mine. And we're like, help, you know? And, and so... <laughs> That was like where we were at. And I think it was so hard for us at that point. And I, but this is what ended up becoming really useful 
in the process is getting fresh eyes with new editors and new people coming in because you know when we first started this documentary we had such a clear idea of what needed to be done but as we the years drew dragged on we still held on to those founding principles that's true but the intricacies of the situation just became so real to us living it day to day i mean this was we were because of how quickly things would unfold we were every day we were talking to our team every day we were following the news and then years go by and then you just like it's really hard to say okay well if you're just seeing this for the first time 90 minutes to two hours like what what do you do you know and and, and what's important and so bringing in ashana showing our executive producers bringing in an editor that editor gets sucked in because they accidentally watched all of our footage which was a mistake because now you're where we are and you don't know where you are anymore so then you go okay sorry dude you're you're down with us in the hole we need to find someone on the surface again bring in the next editor that person gets sucked in. and like finally you've gotten the piece to a point that's like you can almost see where the end is if you're not us and then that's like michael came in also like a very talented editor but like he was like okay I don't need to really look at too much more footage from like the well. I can see the final piece in what you have. And then he kind of like brought us that last mile, right? And I think with something like this, these long-term projects, it's so important to have those fresh eyes and have them on deck almost. Like we, without Shauna and then Shauna kind of helping us find them on the, along the way, like I don't know when we would have found them and if we would have found them on time. But if you're going to be going into a project like this, recommend you know recommendation to future independent filmmakers who might be endeavoring in a year-long process, like schedule a guy one year out who's not who you trust creatively, but who's not going to look at anything you've ever done, and is just going to look at what you have and then give you an honest opinion because what you create is going to be like is just going to be nonsense. Um, Totally. So I mean, you need, you, you need that perspective. You said, so you mentioned a long term here. Normally, I think independent films are like a couple of years, two, two and a half, three years. How long have you guys been working on this, uh, this project? Uh, I can even remember. Like, I actually, I have a, my dog turned five. He's going to turn five in two months and I didn't have him. So, so, so been a long been a long, long time. So that's one of my things I'm always fascinated about documentaries because documentary, especially like this one, you don't know what the hell's going to, what you're going to have when you start this. You don't know what the ending is, where it's going to be, when to end it. How do you make a, you know, quote unquote business plan for something like this? How do you figure out what a budget looks like? You're hiring camera people. How many more times are you going to need them? How many more others do you do? What was the process like for you guys? I'll let Max or Yeah, I mean, this, that is a crazy question. This would not have happened without Greg Little. I mean, there's no way this film would have happened in like outside of this one person, honestly. It's it just because it required someone fully committed to the topic financially and was willing to go the distance with the filmmakers. Um, as the story evolved and as the Venezuelan news continued to unfold, he knew it. Like he just said, I'm, I'm still like, he just stayed in all like, it was just, a, he was, kind, he's just kind of a miracle. <laughs> I mean, I, as a producer who does do budgets for other filmmakers and who, you know, does proper schedules and all that, 
um, this, you know, this is a very unique situation. Um, and just, and I'm saying that because I just can't imagine like Nelson and Marcus and Max having to like write grants every time they ran out of money or like going back to raise more money, you know, with like a bunch of individuals and still stay like in tune with what was going on in the streets in Venezuela. Like there's just no way they could have. Right. Or even have that. the time, like literally yeah, have the time. I mean, like it just would never. So it, it's, it's, um, yeah, I don't know that this, this is just like a business plan based film. It was really heart driven and topic driven. And like, I love how Max explained that like this deep hole you go into, cause I've even been down there and had to like climb myself out. And for me, I don't know if it's just like being a woman or whatever, but like I get so invested in the people in Venezuela. Like it just wasn't about making this movie anymore. And like to this day, it still isn't. It's, it was, it just, it just has such a higher purpose. Right. And so you're just like, I don't care if this takes 20 years, like we're going to get this thing out. You know, like it, it was just like you, once you, we all just became pit bulls and like with a bone in our mouth. And we were like, we, I'm sludge fast through whatever it took to get it done. And we had, luckily we had an EP that, um, was looking, you know, he's a great businessman, but he was, look, it was, you know, he was, he had his eye on the humanity of it more, which was, so that, and that's Greg Little, who is the producer that came in from the start and and saw this thing through until now. So going on that and, and talking about the purpose, uh, every documentary you want eyeballs on the thing, right? So how did the film festival route go? How is distribution? How has it gone and where is it going? And, and, and how is the film moving forward to, to, to get as many eyeballs as possible? Yeah. So we, I think we had a pretty decent festival run. You know, we, uh, we had the fortunate and unfortunate, uh, like we were still in post during COVID hit. So we went from having editors working in the same room to everyone going home and, the guys were doing zoom interviews to like finish the movie during COVID. So that was a challenge just to even get it ready for a festival. And then we premiered at doc NYC. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, you know, we were disappointed. We didn't get into any majors, I guess. Is that, but then at the end of the day, it was like total blessing in disguise because we, we ended up getting just huge following in the human rights world. So it, it, you know, it screened it like all the human rights watch well, a lot of them, like, you know, UK, um, you know, Canada. Uh, yeah, it's been, and, and then we screened in Miami. Anyway, we, you can go on our website to see all the festivals has been in now, but um, the, so distribution wise, it, we, I mean, just cause this is a filmmaker crowd, I'm just going to like talk, keep it real. Yeah, no, that's, that's what, we, that's what we're here for. <laughs> um, without, I'm trying to be diplomatic at the same time, but um, here's, I think the challenge with like, okay, COVID hit, festivals are going virtual. We've still yet to see this film with an audience. It's never, we've never sat in a room with like- Yeah, that's the, that's the hardest part of the festival. Right? I don't think we've like, even seen it with each other in the same room. room. Yeah, we've yeah. never watched this movie together. I just realized like- it's, That's pretty yeah, crazy. That sucks. But um, I think what's... everybody's like, how's the festival route? I'm like, good, just Zoom call and you know. 
Yeah. And I think the challenge for the, so we thought, I think in the beginning, we naively thought like, oh my God, like maybe this COVID thing is going to like be the best thing ever because production is shut down and everyone's going to want all this, this um, content, right? And there'll just be this flood of content and we've got the best content ever and we're going to have a bidding war. Like, you know, I think we had all those kind of ideas and which, because especially because we, you know, we knew we had a quality project and and almost the reverse started happening where Netflix like went through the roof with all the streaming views. Then all of a sudden, all the streamers got on like in that game at the same time. And now they needed a ton of product, but they had less money to spend because they had more content to fill these slots. So I, I think What's terrifying for me right now and the doc as a doc producer is how we've already had trouble making money as doc producers. And now we, you know, you hear the headline of like so-and-so set, you know, sold their film for $10 million. I mean, that's like the canary and the like whatever. Yeah, that doesn't happen. That's the exception. I mean, and 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 then my colleagues and I like I'm we're shocked at how low the the acquisition you know fees and the acquisition like they're just incredibly low right now so um I'm not saying you know we we were very fortunate you know we with the HBO Max um it's actually a Warner Media deal um and then they they just they selected which platform they wanted it to go on which we're so excited and blown away that HBO Max is that took it did that come out of the, the festival run or did, did they see it in festivals or where, how did, how did they get to it? How did they get their eyes on it? Endeavor content represents um, priority pictures on multiple films and, and our film got packaged into, into that. So Endeavor um, represented the filmmakers on sales. Got and, it. And they set that deal up. That's, I mean, honestly, it's very cool. And you got to feel great as a filmmaker to have an HP, a documentary of no, you know, no doubt, like going to HBO Max. That's kind of like the, the, the gold standard, right? Like if you, I mean, if I got, if I made a doc, there's like HBO Max, I'd be like, mm-hmm, yep. I'm going to just, uh, <laughs> not even going to sign this acquisition. I'm going to frame this shit, put it up. <laughs> so I, I have, do you guys know, is HBO Max available in a, in Venezuela is, and will they, will people there be able to see it or, or have you got response from the country? Uh, have people seen the stock uh, in the country? No, we have uh, HBO max is us only. US only. Right. Sorry. Yeah. US only. Right. So that to you're not, so I guess up to this point, nobody, this has probably not even been shown in Venezuela. Like, are they aware that it exists? They are. Um, our social media, our analytics show that um, we have more Venezuelan followers than U.S. followers. Um, wow. They're very, very much wanting to see it, but the the censorship there, um, yeah. we just don't know how that's going to play out. So we are about to make an announcement on an international deal that will take over the rest of the world uh, rights, and we'll have to strategically figure out um, how to deal with that America. region. Man, that's it's also... It's also not to say that, and not, uh, I hope whatever I'm about to say is not going to come out wrong, but nothing that our documentary shows Venezuelans is going to be something that they need to be seen, that they need to see in a documentary. I think it's more about them knowing that what that this is getting out to the rest of the world, I think is the most important part because 
you know, there haven't been many like top, like high profile documentaries or pieces on what's going on in Venezuela, despite it being one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world and the worst in Latin America, um, Latin American history. So it's, I think it's more about them knowing Venezuelans knowing it's getting out. And, you know, in fact, if you showed a Venezuelan our film, they would be very happy that it's getting out, but they'd be like, oh, but you forgot this, you forgot this, you forgot that, because the subject matter is so deep and there's so much to say that's that they would almost be like, this is too simple. And that was a challenge that we struggled with making it because we have to understand who our, we had to decide who our audience was, actually. And we decided that our audience wasn't, you know, people who already knew the intricacies of the suffering and, and, and what was going on, but it was people outside of that who needed to kind of learn more and kind of try to inspire change in whatever form that we could, whether that is, you know, uh, work through the UN, Human Rights Watch, or just people in their own communities, like in Florida, who are accepting tons of Venezuelan refugees, being more aware of what that means for them and what it, what kindness toward these people um, can mean for them. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think that I'm your target audience for this. I, I mean, I don't think that that's offensive in any way. I think that they'd be like, yeah, this is our story here. And I think that's what you kind of sense from the piece. And to give that a voice is really, honestly, very honorable. The one thing that really stuck with me from, I think it was in the first act of the documentary, but it was, you know, it compared, you know, the, 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 the Dust Bowl, the, the Great Depression of the U.S. There's a st statistic and a quote that was like, that was like a GDP that dropped down to what, like 17% or something in the U.S. or 14%. And then there's one in Spain that dropped like 17 or 19 or 20. And then in Venezuela, was it in 2017? I'm butchering these statistics. But in like 2017, it was like, it dropped 45% and then 70%. It's like, Jesus, like you don't even recognize how far... You know what I mean? That 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 drop indicates until you start to see some of these people in the day to day lives that they're having to live and continue to live because of the oppression. Yeah, the economic the economic issue we realized very early on that it was the driving factor for the the basically what's happening now. You know, it wasn't only a I don't know a, like like a, like a structure of government, you know, it was like an economic problem. That was very, very deep, you know, because Venezuela is going into, uh, you know, uh, nationalizing all the private sector, like going into debt with countries and not being able to pay, you know, destroying the whole co uh, company. You know, I, I'm in Colombia right now and I was, I was explaining to some people I'm working with and they're filmmakers and they're in, they're in Colombia, the country has taken the most Venezuelans and uh, it's right next to Venezuela, you know? And I was trying to tell him like, this is what happened, you know, because the oil, it wasn't necessarily, you know, like US pressure. People have all these ideas, you know, but it was an economic problem, you know? It's like, we were spending more than we were actually getting. You know? Yeah, agreed. Um, you know, I, I can relate to that because I had just, heard headlines here and there and you know seeing this film was the most i've learned about the uh the situation uh other than hearing headlines here and there and actually putting it in a complete story that kind of fills in a lot of those gaps uh i think is is really um admirable and uh hopefully a lot more people will see
Well, it all came out really great. We love checking it out. Uh, the film is A La Calle. Uh, it is on HBO Max on September 15th. I'd strongly encourage anyone listening to go check it out. And um, where else can they find out any, uh, any more information on the film? Or I also imagine you guys are probably sharing information on uh, the situation in Venezuela. Where can people find out more? Everything um, can be found on alacayefilm.com and all of our social handles are at alacayefilm. IFG is created by Framework Productions. This episode was directed by James Allardyce, produced and edited by Matt Mundy and Audrey Ray McHale, and hosted by Stephen Pierce. The music is by Glassboy. Find his music on freemusicarchive.org. See and listen to all the episodes plus bonus content at independentfilmmakersguide.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, friends, we just wanted to take a quick moment to talk about two personal things. First, we wanted to thank you, our listening community and our wonderful guests, learning so much together along the way and continuing to learn, sharing our stories, making a lot of new friends and collaborating, which is exactly what this is all about. Which also brings me to my second point. In great part to many of these new relationships, we wanted to let you know that we've taken a lot of this advice ourselves and made our own narrative feature film, Heard. H-E-R-D, Heard, which is premiering this October on Friday the 13th in select theaters as well as on VOD. Personally, I think it's the perfect kind of scary movie to watch during our favorite scary season. So we'd love for you to celebrate with us and watch Heard. You can pre-order it on Apple TV, and of course, do the communal thing, see it in theaters. Of course, for all of this, please see our show notes, but basically, we're going to keep it all updated at herd.film. That's H-E-R-D dot F-I-L-M, herd.film as well. Thank you again, and be sure to give us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to build this community and collaborate. IFG, how movies get made.